Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we again come before you and thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your watch care. And we ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds and may this message about you enlighten the world that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number five in the book of Acts, the conversion of Paul's the title. But before we do, I, I told you that I would follow up with something from last week. Anybody remember? I mentioned in class last week that the Ten Commandments were written on sapphire. And some people go, well, I've never heard that. And so I said, well, I'll follow up with that. So let's go through the evidence of why I said that. And we'll start with Exodus chapter 24, verse 9 and 10. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. Two verses later, same, same setting, that just, I just eliminated one verse. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of the stone with the law and commands that I've written in their instruction. What stone? If you contextually look, the only stone mentioned in the context in the setting was the stone of sapphire. Oh, that's kind of loose, okay. You've got a basis for it. It might be true. Well, let's make it, see if we can't tighten that up. Numbers chapter 15, 37 through 39. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put blue thread in the tassels of the corner. And you shall have the tassels with the blue thread that you may look upon and remember all the commandments of the Lord. Well, why was the thread of blue to remind them of the commandments? Because the, the commandments are written on blue stone, the, the sapphire. It's, uh, uh, let's go maybe tighten it up a little more. Revelation 17, 1 through 5. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me saying, Come, I will show you the, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now notice this. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls on her head and mystery of Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth. Now, I just wanted you to notice the colors of the woman, the harlot. And the colors were scarlet, purple, and gold. Now we're going to look at the high priest. Here's the high priest. This is Exodus 28, 5, and 6. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and shall make an ephod of gold, gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven, woven linen artistically. So what color does the harlot not have that the high priest does have? Blue. Blue. Which means the false church rejects the law of God, which is the law of love, which is the design protocols. The high priest now wore a breastplate with 12 stones on it. Symbolically, what did the breastplate with 12 stones represent? The 12 stones represented the 12 tribes, and symbolically, the 12 tribes represented the peoples of the earth. And where did the breastplate get worn? on the breast or the chest. So it symbolically says, the peoples of the earth are tied to my heart. 
That's what it said. Now, what do you think the breastplate was tied to the high priest's garments with? Well, I'll read it to you. Exodus 28, 28. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its ring to the rings of the ephod using a blue cord so that it is, a, uh, it is above the intricately woven band. What does the blue cord represent? The law of God or the law of love, his designs for life. And so I read this out of the book called Desire of Ages, page 329. The yoke that binds to the service to service is the law of God, the great law of love revealed in Eden, proclaimed upon Sinai, and in the new covenant written on the heart, is that which binds the human worker to the will of God. So, false religions of the world, including false Christianity, deny God's design law of love. They don't deny the Ten Commandments as a system of rules, functioning like human law, but they deny the design elements or aspects of it. Thus, they teach religious obligations, ceremonies, rituals at the expense of loving people. Thus, they're represented by the harlot without the blue thread. So how this might look? Like an artist's depiction of the Ten Commandments. Lewis Johnson created that for us. And he did the artwork in the Journal of the Watcher. So when I said they were written on sapphire, I'm not just making it up. There's an actual basis. And I would suggest if you disagree, show me a better basis it was written on something else than that basis. Any questions about that? Wasn't it kind of cool? You see the thread how it runs through? Yeah. In the Sabbath lesson, the last paragraph says, Paul's previous actions in persecuting the early church always would bring him uh, would always would bring him deep sense of his own unworthiness, though he could say with a still deeper sense of gratitude that God's grace to him uh, had not been in vain. With Paul's conversion, Christianity changed forever. If, if you were to pick one of the apostles, and there were 13, there were the 12, minus Judas, plus Matthias, who made it 12 again, and then Paul. There were 13 apostles. If you were to pick one of, the, of these based on the records that we have, that you would say was the most active, the most persistent, the most determined, the most aggressive in spreading the gospel, which of the 13 would you pick? And I think that's fair, a, fair, a fair assessment, Paul. Do you think that Paul's history of persecuting the Christian church before his conversion contributed to his aggressive passion at spreading the gospel once he was converted? In other words, do you think that if Paul had merely converted like James and John without having persecuted the church first, that he would have been as aggressive in sharing the gospel? Or was his own disappointment with himself a motivator, something that might have he felt a need to so undo or disprove or overcome his previous reputation, uh, make up in some way, not to earn salvation, but to in some way repair damage that he may have caused? Paul might have thought something like, I know there's nothing I can do that will in any way earn my salvation. That is only through the free remedy given to me by Jesus. But I know my previous actions turned people away from Jesus, and I want to do everything I can to bring at least as many back to Jesus as I drove away. So I, I put that out there, that Paul, this, and you read in Paul's writings, he really did reference many times he's the least of the one, his, what he'd done before, and I think that he really was disappointed with himself that he had gotten deceived by the system that he was raised in, that he actually worked against God when he so wanted to work for God, and that became a motivator once he really saw God's true character. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. 
Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. His birthplace was Tar- Tarsus, uh, the capital of Cilicia. Notwithstanding, uh, to a certain extent, he deviated from the Hel- Hellenistic stereotypes, for he was brought to Jerusalem where he studied under Gamaliel. Uh, and most, uh, influ- the most influential Pharisaic teacher of the time. As a Pharisee, Paul was strictly orthodox, though his zeal bordered on fanaticism. This is why he led Stephen to his. This is uh, why, yeah, he led Stephen to his death because of the key figure uh, in ensuing, and it became a key figure in ensuing the persecution of the church. So, Paul's education, described here, re- mentioned in Acts twenty-two. Would you say it would be equivalent to a seminary education today, for his day? And did Paul go to um, a pagan seminary, or would he be considered orthodox? Officially church-sanctioned education. Did Paul's seminary training under his pharisaical teachers prepare him to be an apostle of Jesus, or put an obstruction and obstructions in his mind to becoming an apostle to Jesus, or neither, or both. Here's a commentary from the book of Desire of Ages regarding the quality of education in Paul's, Paul's day. See what you think. It's page 69. In the days of Christ, the, towns or, uh, ta- the town or city that did not provide for the religious instruction of the youth was regarded as under the curse of God. Yet the teaching had become formal. Tradition had in a great degree supplanted the scriptures. True education would lead the youth, true education would lead the youth to seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, Acts 17.27. But the Jewish teachers gave their attention to matters of ceremony. The mind was crowded with material that was worthless to the learner and that would not be recognized in the higher school of the courts above. The experience which is obtained through a personal acceptance of God's word had no place in the educational system. Absorbed in the rounds of externals, the students found no quiet hours to spend with God. They did not hear his voice speaking to the heart. In their search after knowledge, they, they turned away from the source of wisdom. The great essentials of the, ser- of the service of God were neglected. The principles of the law were obscured. That which was regarded as superior education was the greatest hindrance to real development. Under the training of the rabbis, the powers of the youth were repressed. Their minds became cramped and narrow. Thoughts about that? We're going we're gonna to draw some inferences here in a minute, so be thinking about this. Okay, This is out of a book called The Life Sketches of Paul, page 38. And it's uh, in Friday's lesson. They quote it in Friday's lesson. So it's coming out of our lesson, this exact quote, if you want to follow along. It says, Christ had commanded his disciples to go and teach all nations, but the previous teachings which they had received from the Jews made it difficult for them to fully comprehend the words of their master. And therefore, they were slow to act upon them. They called themselves the children of Abraham and regarded themselves as heirs of the divine promise. It was not until several years after the Lord's ascension that their minds were sufficiently expanded to clearly understand the intent of Christ's words, that they were to labor for the conversion of Gentiles as well as Jews. Did God lead Israel to set up the schools of the prophets? Yes, he did. What happened? If this was God-ordained, God-directed, God-designed, God-instructed, 
What happened? Same thing that happened with the sanctuary service and all the festivals. Which is? They just started doing it as routine, and the, the very things you do to get saved, they lost the whole over the meaning of things, the importance of things. The ritual was all. So this is out of a book called Christ Triumphant, page 78, and it's uh, speaking about the time of the advent of Christ when he was being about to be born. It says, The angels from heaven did not come to the school of the prophets and sing their anthems over the temple or synagogue, but they went to those who were humble enough to receive the message. They sang the glad tidings of the Savior over Bethlehem's plains while the great, the rulers, the honorable were left in darkness because they were perfectly satisfied with their possession, excuse me, position, and felt no need of piety greater than that which they possessed. Teachers in the schools of the prophets, the scribes and priests, the rulers, were the worst persecutors of Christ. And Tim, can I add too that in Matthew 22, uh, starting at verse 15, Jesus gives his own condemnation of the uh, the way the Pharisees taught and went after you know approached their people that they were instructing. Woe unto you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much as of a son of hell as you are. Okay, which means? Explain that. It means that in one point they already did know God, so that was one obstacle. And then obstacle two was they told him wrong things about God. So think that through. Exactly what she said. If you don't know God, there's an obstacle to coming to salvation, to coming to regeneration. You've got to know God before you can trust him. That's one obstacle, being ignorant of God. But how about if you're taught an entire false system and distortion about God? Now you still don't know him, but you have this whole other thing in the way that you have to unlearn. You have two obstacles in the way. Yeah. Looking back at my Christian education and how conservative, conservative maybe is a bad word to use, but you have such a legal picture of I do this, I do this, I do this, and you have that fear if I don't do this, then I'm going to have problems. So you're so ingrained in this fear-driven mindset that you're afraid to search anything else out. You just want to take what it is because that's what keeps me safe because I do this. Instead of having a relationship with God and seeing that, oh, that's not even an issue. Once you start seeing the light, all these other things are non-starters. So following up what you said then, I'm going to ask the question, could we have problems in our Christian schools today similar to what's being described in the schools of the prophets 2,000 years ago? Could that be a problem? Is it possible the worst persecutors of Christ today are the religious teachers and theologians? Am I, am I being too offensive? I'm asking the question, uh, uh, if you look at the history of the human race, who led the children of Israel into apostasy over and over again through the Old Testament? You'll find that the priests and false prophets did this. Well, I think that's the biggest thing is being willing to ask the questions. So many times you get into conversations with people who feel like they know all the answers and they don't want to even ask a question. 
And with religious organizations, oftentimes people, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago in the pagan Christianity discussion, that somebody who ends up in the role of a pastor or church leader or Bible teacher, somehow the, this, this idea gets woven in that they now have been elevated in some way to be superior than everyone else in, in authority and position and knowledge and something so that you aren't really appropriate in asking the questions. You should submit to their ruling on the various doctrinal and biblical questions. This is very corrupt. This is not how God designed it. As we, in our position here, I'm not above anybody. My goal is to trigger and stimulate your thinking processes, your reasoning powers, your investigative skills, so that you will weigh out the issues and come to your own mind. I'm not here to do anybody's thinking for them. But many times in these other types of systems, it's, it's that way. Yes, yes. I just wanted to say, sadly, it's not just in the school, but in the homes. Yes, and the parents who would do this, where did they get it? From their parents and from their systems that they're part of. If you remember in Christ's day, I don't have the quote here, but you remember the, the story of the, of the blind man who Christ healed, and they called the parents in to ask, is this your son, and how was he healed? And their answer was, well, you can ask him, he's of age, and they give a reason. Because the church leaders were throwing people out of the synagogue and they were afraid that the church leaders would throw them out. So they were fearful of the, of the response of the, of the organized church leadership so that they wouldn't actually stand for what they knew to be true. But he did get thrown out. He did, but the parents didn't answer because of the fear, the intimidation factor. And many people in church organizations today have that same fear. They don't want to speak up in their class. They don't want to speak up and ask questions for fear that the organization will somehow condemn them and throw them out. So we can also respond to this individually the way Paul did, not just in the home or the school or the church, but individually. He had three obstacles. Uh, Acts of the Apostles, she, uh, she writes his education and prejudices, his respect for his former teachers, and his pride of popularity braced him to rebel against the voice of conscience and the grace of God. Oh, that's, that's very well said. Very well said. Yes, over here, Karen, do you have a comment? The responsibility for someone with the pulpit, with the microphone, with the pen and, and publishing, the responsibility of, of what they teach about God to their audience, be it their children or the students or their church members, is it's pretty overwhelming. As we see evidenced by those who have come to a new understanding of God and they look back at that which they've taught over the years, parents that have regretted the way they raised their kids, again, teachers and so on, it's, it's pretty uh, our responsibility to speak well of God at all times on an individual basis, but particularly when you're given the authority of the pulpit. The and why would good-hearted people with that authority make these tragic, repetitive, harmful mistakes over and over again? What's, what's the underlying reason? Now, I'm going to suggest to you the method they've been taught is wrong. Right. One of the methods that I use comes from my clinical practice. As a physician, and I'm seeing a patient, and I'm thinking about uh, uh, prescribing an intervention or a treatment, I want some evidence that it works, that it results in a positive outcome, that it heals, it, it transforms, it, it rejuvenates. I want some evidence prior to giving it. And if it's some case in which there is no, it's, 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 it's a new diagnosis, nobody knows what to do about it, and that happens in medicine. Uh, we're, we're on the investigative forefront investigating possible treatments. Then I want some rationale in, in science, in the, in the way biology and systems work, a, a, a rationale that what we're trying to do that has makes sense within the harmony of the laws of health, right? And then when I give that, 
I want to then observe the, the reaction and, and does, this, does this help? Does it get better? Does it get worse? What's happening? And then adjust accordingly. This is not how theology works. It really doesn't matter if people get better or not as long as they're obeying the rules. We have a system of rules and we declare those to you and you obey them. And even if it makes you more hard-hearted, more unkind, uh, more fearful, more insecure, it doesn't matter as long as you obey the rules. And when you try to tell people you have to, you have to harmonize your understanding of Scripture with God's design laws as it teaches in Scripture to do, how he's constructed reality work and real life experience. When you harmonize those, then you come back to what I was just teaching. But when I tell people this, they go, no, no, no. Can't do that. So this is a methodological difference. They want to be, and this was Paul prior to Damascus Road. He was really wanting to keep the rules that he was taught. You guys aren't keeping the rules. You're not doing the, the, the rituals. You're not following the pattern that we were given anymore. But let's not be all or nothing thinkers. All, one way or nothing. Let's not be black and white extremist thinkers. In Christ's day, coming out of the school, coming out of the Sanhedrin, there was Joseph of Arimathea. There was Nicodemus. Two godly men who were educated by the system. That the majority of that Sanhedrin were not open to grow in truth. They crucified Christ. In Paul's case, after his conversion to Damascus Road, so now he's converted. He's accepted Christ. Was he then, after his conversion, ready immediately to be an apostle for, for God, for Jesus? What did Paul first need? Now that he's converted... Mature his character. Mature his character, yes, absolutely. What else? Re-education. Uh, mature his thinking, re-education. Yes, and if you read what the New Testament tells us, he spent three years in the desert with Christ being re-educated. He had to unlearn a lot of things. He had to learn some new things. Now, this book out of a book called Acts of the Apostles, page 125. Here in the solitude of the desert, Paul had ample opportunity for quiet study and meditation. He calmly reviewed his past experiences and his past experience and made sure work of repentance. He sought God with all his heart, resting not until he knew for certain that his repentance was accepted and his sin pardoned. He longed for the assurance that Jesus would be with him in the coming ministry. He emptied a soul of his prejudices and traditions that had hitherto shaped his life and received instruction from the source, and this, this author has a capital S, of truth, Jesus communed with him and established him in the faith, bestowing upon him rich measure. And we know that, that Paul talked about that he was an apostle because he saw and met with Jesus directly as well as the other apostles. So does this mean, after saying all this, that Christian education is a bad thing? No, it doesn't mean that. Don't go out of here. Somebody's going to hear what I just said. So he's ditching on Christian education. He's undermining Christian education. No, I'm not. Christian education is a good thing. Yes. I think also the, the importance is dis distinguishing between the church and the organization of the church or organized religion. So you're talking about the church invisible, the church that is actually uh, the individual members made up with the renewed hearts versus an organized system. Right. So, you know, as Acts of Apostles describes, Paul was directed to the church for both direction as well as verification of his ministry. Um, and he was directed... But Paul did not actually pursue verification of his ministry. Uh, just reading from Acts of the Apostles, um, page 
122. Many have an idea that they are responsible to Christ alone for their light and experience, independent of his recognized followers on earth. Jesus is the friend of sinners, and his heart is touched with their woe. He has all power, both in heaven and on earth, but he respects the means that he has ordained for the enlightenment and salvation of men. He directs sinners to the church, which he has made a channel of light to the world. When in the midst of blind error and prejudice, Saul was given a revelation to Christ, whom he was persecuting, he was placed in direct communication with the church, which is the light of the world. In this case, Ananias represents Christ, and also represents Christ's ministers upon the earth, who are appointed to act in his stead. In Christ's stead, Ananias touched the eyes of Saul, that they may receive sight. In Christ's stead, he places his hands upon him, and as he prays in Christ's name, Saul receives the Holy Ghost. All is done in the name and by the authority of Christ. Christ is a fountain. The church is the channel of communication. The church universal, not necessarily the church organization. So what you described there was a little different than what was said about him seeking the church for his authority or to verify him as, a, as an apostle. He did not. What you're describing is after his conversion, he connected with the church to accept him, validate him as one who's been converted. But then he went out three and a half years in the desert with Christ, and he comes back there equipped by Christ, and he did not require the, uh, the uh, authorization of an organization for him to do ministry. The other thing about that is that was also beneficial for the church members to, to minister to him. Yes, yes, and to prepare them to be able to receive the, what God was going to do through him. Yeah, so that was also to help reduce their biases against Saul of Tarsus. By, when we minister to others, we are blessed. You know, and it's not by us keeping it in ourselves. We have to minister to others. So, so Ananias, if you remember, as well as other church members, had biases against Paul. Rightly so, biases. What you just described there required them to struggle in their own hearts with whether they were going to stay angry, resentful, bitter, hostile, prejudiced against Paul, or were they going to be open to uh, evidences that Paul was actually someone safe, loyal, faithful, that they could trust, and deal with their own biases and prejudices in your heart. So what you're describing is it's beneficial to us, yes, because it requires us to address the various elements that of fear, self-centeredness in our own hearts, and through God's grace and working with the spirit of truth and love, work them out. Yes. So, back to the question of the Christian education. Is Christian education a bad thing? No. We just have to define what Christian education is. Even through an institutional system. I'm very thankful for my Christian education. However, it wasn't until I could throw off the false imposed law lens, the lie of the penal substitution view of seeing what was taught in Scripture, and see God as the creator and his laws as design laws, that was actually fit to write and to teach. Then with a new perspective, and I have been able, with this new perspective, and I've got this new understanding, I've been able to access a big database of information that was uploaded through my Christian education, even though while I was going through the Christian education, as I'm uploading this database, these Bible stories and all these Bible verses and memory verses that I've learned, I'm uploading all this, uh, it was taught to me that it means this, it means this, it means this, and these. so these filters that were put on it I had to get rid of, but then the raw data itself I was able to reprocess. And so I was very, very blessed by my Christian education. 
And I think that's exactly how Saul of Tarsus was. That's why he became so effective, because after he got the new perspective, he had this huge database of, of the Bible and the rituals and what they actually were tr- uh, trying to teach and point to, that he could then come back and say, it doesn't mean this, it means that. And it's not circumcision of the body, it's circumcision of the heart. Okay? He could reapply it in a more accurate way with his new lenses, but he had to have that data in order to do it. How do we apply that today as we make decisions whether to send our kids to the... How do we balance that in the home? The primary thing is you as the parent need to be processing with them what they're being taught and that uh, they need to learn to think for themselves and they need to be taught the integrative evidence-based approach and it is okay to question their teachers as long as they question their teachers respectfully. Uh, it's absolutely okay, even if the teachers don't like it. And i got to tell you, I was uh, a thorn in some of my teacher's side. I have one teacher in here that could, could remember that. <laughs> Because uh, I asked lots of questions, um, you know, and uh, sometimes I would ask questions when, particularly when things don't make sense. So it's the point is you're not going to school to be indoctrinated to think and know in, in certain ways. You're going to school to learn how to reason through evidence. Yes, there's certain facts you have to learn, certain certain protocols, principles, whether it's mathematics or something else that are just fact-based realities. You've got to learn those. Bible verses, learn them. But what they mean, how do you understand them? How do they apply? That is a process of learning how to think, how to reason, how to weigh evidences. And that requires that they struggle through problems rather than being told the answers. Think about if you're learning math. Is the best math teacher the one who gives the kids the key to the questions and tells them, here's the answers to to the questions. So you know the answers and you write those down, you get the answers right. Or is the best math teacher the one who teaches them how to solve the problems? Well, life's a series of problems to be solved. And many people, when they go to Christian education, the teachers are about telling the right answers. Here's the right answer. Well, how did you get that? Well, the Bible said it. You know, how did you get the right answer in that math? Well, the key in the back of the, of the book said that's the right answer. That's how I know it's the right answer, because the key said it. That's terrible. And that's how many people are with their religion. The Bible said it. The catechism said it. Um, you know, the, the church, 27 fundamental beliefs said it. Uh, some organization, some authority said it. That's how we know. That's not what we do in here. We want you to know because it's evidence-based. You can think through it. Cause to effect. That's how reality works. And it may help in a funny, alternate way to have gone through education, even like what we went through and now we question some of it, because at least you understand how everybody else is thinking. <laughs> why they think. Why do people think that, they, that, that evolution is true, for example? Even though you may not approach it as being true, at least it helps you understand Sure. Their thought Absolutely. Process, the person you're dealing with's process. No, exactly right. Exactly right. Paul says elsewhere that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. Besides the fact that Jesus did not fit their traditional Jewish expectations of the kingly Messiah, they could by no means accept the idea that the one who had died on a cross could be God's Messiah. For the scripture says that anyone who is hung, un, uh, who is hung under God's, anyone who is hung is under God's curse. Hung on a tree uh, under God's curse. So, why is the gospel a stumbling block, gospel of Jesus Christ, a stumbling block for the Jews? What causes them to stumble? When you, when you have the image in your mind of somebody stumbling, what, what image comes to mind of stumbling? They didn't have the right vision of how the Messiah would appear when he comes. Okay, they didn't have the right vision of how the Messiah was going to come. So, the lesson suggests that they stumbled, at least partly, because he was hung on a tree. But they also suggest they stumbled even before that because he didn't fit their model. 
What caused them to stumble before the crucifixion? And we'll come to the tree question in a moment. It's hanging on the cross. How did they view scripture prior? And, and, you, and you quoted a moment. You see the New Testament. Christ dialogues back and forth with them over scripture over and over again. So there's evidence. How did they view scripture? Auditory. Is that what you're asking? How did they know it? They knew it? No, no, no. How did they view it? In other words, not how they physically view it. How did they understand it? How did they comprehend it? What did they understand? Did they view it as a a uh, medical textbook that is trying to teach, uh, by examples, the problems and the solutions for the sin problem? Or did they view it more like a um, rule book, uh, the, the, the rule book of baseball, that you have to know the right rules and you have to follow the right rules, and if you don't follow the right rules, then you're in some type of legal trouble? They view it more like a medical text, here the, uh, exposing the pathology, exposing the sin problem, showing it's how, how awful it looks when, you, when you're out of harmony with God's design, and here's God's solution and how he's working to fix it and heal it. Or do they see it more like a system of rules and a code book that you're supposed to keep? Absolutely. There are certain places where it says, whatever the Lord has said, we will do. Yes, Russell. Back to your question about stumbling, it's much easier to stumble when you're walking in darkness. There you go. And when you're walking in the light, you can see various obstacles, but you still have obstacles that you can stumble in the light. So they stumble over Christ because they come with a mindset that's enlightened, or as Isaiah says, darkness covers the people, gross darkness the people. And so they view the scriptures through a way that does not enlighten them. It darkens them. And what way would darken them? It's a paradigm of how you look at things. How did they understand sin? What would you think that they understood sin to be in Christ's day, based on the New Testament That's Paul's statement. I'm talking the Pharisees at Christ. So stick with the Gospels and the interaction you see. They don't ever use that word, I don't think. How how, how did they see sin? Your disciples aren't washing their hands, Jesus. They they ate grain uh, without washing their hands. They pulled grain on Sabbath, Jesus. You just healed and had a man carry his mat. You're breaking the law. You're a lawbreaker. I mean, there's lots of evidence. How did they view the law? As design law, a system of rules that require judicial oversight, enforcement, is very clear they viewed it as a system of rules. Outward behavior. Which was behaviorally conforming. We had to conform our behavior to it. And thus they not only had that, they had all their man-made rules. You've got to tithe on the herbs of your garden. You have all the, and then Jesus brought uh, how they, they destroy the law of God, honor your mother and father, for their own rules, which if I say I'm going to dedicate my property to the church after I die, then I don't have to use my property to support my, my parents in their old age. Because it's now the church is dedicated to them, so I can ignore the care for my parents by dedicating my... And I get to keep and live off of it the whole time until I die, but then the church gets it, see? So it's really about me. In other words, is you can put your feet in the water up to your ankles on Sabbath if you go above that. There you go. This is the legal approach, the rules-oriented approach. This is clearly how they saw law. Um, what was the point of Jesus? If you think I, I'm wrong on this, I'm giving you evidences here. What was the point of the discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus? Do you remember the story? John chapter 3, I believe. Nicodemus and Jesus. What was the emphasis? Unless a man be born again, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. How can a man go back in his mother's womb and be born again? What is Jesus trying to tell him? You can't get to heaven by rule keeping. He's a leader in Israel. We are, we're, 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 he's a fairy, he's a rule keeper. Unless a man be born again. What's born again mean? Rule keeping or healing, regeneration, transformation, cleansing? Jesus clearly is telling this man who's interested to know 
that the rule-keeping approach is not the way to understand the law. It's a design law to heal and restore and bring people back to God's original design. So how did Jesus dying on the cross play into the Jews? So, so they were blind, they stumbled, because he came in a way to bring healing and light and truth, and they were looking for a person to come with power and authority and, and rule the, the earthly systems the way earthly systems are ruled, by coercion, might, and force. And he didn't do that. He came as a person. He looked at all his parables, all his teaching, over and over again. He's always drawing lessons from design law and nature, over and over again. So how did then the dying on the cross play into the Jews' false understanding of reality and added to their inability to accept Christ? Well, they read the Bible then. Once you have this approach and you have the human law model, and what's the human law model? And you read like a lawyer, then you go to the, the legal text and you look for what the legal text says is permissible or not permissible. And if it's in the text, that's the law, and we can't interpret We have to apply it. We want a strict constructionalist, a constitutionalist, Okay, I can't think about it. Just apply it. And so they read in the law. Anyone who hung on, hung on a tree is under God's curse. That's what it says. And you think it was said that way because they knew Jesus was going to hang on the cross. Uh, That's why it was in the Bible. I doubt that very seriously. What do you think about the idea of someone hung on a tree being under the curse of God? First off, does the Bible say it? Deuteronomy 21.23 says, For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. That's a quote in the NIV version. The next question is, is it true? Notice, it doesn't say, and the seed of Abraham hung on a a tree is under the curse of God. It says anyone hung on a tree is under the curse of God. So does this mean that when people were being lynched on trees because of the color of their skin, those being lynched are now under God's curse? The Bible said it. Do we believe that? You guys are awful quiet. Do you believe that? If some if some bunch of racist white supremacists take a black man and hang him from a tree, is the black man under a curse? No, guys, he is not under a curse of God. Who would be under the curse of God there? The ones killing him are under God's curse. Yes, Wendell. If you read the the text, um, Deuteronomy twenty one, twenty two, and twenty three, it says the land is cursed because of this happening. Okay, if someone is put to death for a crime and the body is hung on a post, it is not to remain there overnight. It must be buried the same day because a dead body hanging on a post brings God's curse on the land. That, that's an, again, you've reading an interpretation. The Hebrew is wide open to interpretation. That is not the interpretation that the Pharisees in Christ's day had, nor the interpretation that is recorded in the New Testament. So that is a legitimate way to do it. If you read several other versions, though, again, the NIV version that I wrote, hung as anyone, uh, for anyone hung, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. But I think this is more of a natural law thing. This is a curse. There is a curse for this happening, you know, this is not normal, this is not natural, this is a bad thing, it will, it will damage society. Okay, okay. I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just pointing out that that is one of the, it sounds completely different than this version, yeah. and that's the way the Hebrew works. You can actually interpret it that way. But we're talking about this obstacle to the Jews. Why did they prefer this interpretation than the one they could have interpreted it that way, but they didn't. They personalized it very much. Why? 
they had their own system of validation for the way for what they believed, and they they really drove hard on their own validation for things. Was Jesus actually cursed by his father, guys? Was he actually cursed by his father? Okay. And I'm asking the question, is the Deuteronomy text true, the way it's written like that? Paul applies it in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Does that clear it up for you? Well, it, it should. I'll read it again. Here's what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. What is Paul saying? Is Paul saying this is a curse of God, or is Paul saying this is a curse of the law? That's not what Paul said. I'll read it again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and he quotes the, the passage in these New Testament writers, uh, quoted very much like it's in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. What kind of law do you understand God's law to be? The lie that God's law functions no different than human law now, and now puts us under that false law model. The curse would be, what would the curse be? It would be broken rules requiring the ruling authority to inflict punishment, and in this case, kill or execute. That's the curse. You broke the rules, and the curse is, from the rule giver, he curses you for being a lawbreaker, and he kills you. Thus, under the imposed view, the curse would be of God. God inflicts his curse when he is angry and uses his power to inflict death. God personally inflicts the punishment. In this model, then, God is against the person hanging on the tree. It's his judgment of their execution. In the design law model, we realize God's laws are the laws upon which reality is built, and any deviation from these laws results in ruin and death. Thus, to break God's law results in a curse. The curse that Paul describes as the law of sin and death. Here's a, a, two sentences out of a book called Councils to the Church, page 107. Oh, that men and women would consider what is to be gained by transgressing God's law. Under any and every circumstance, transgression is a dishonor to God and a curse to man. Hmm. Why is transgression of God's law a curse to man? Because God is now angry, wrathful. He pronounces curses upon you. He's the speaker of existence. He speaks things and it becomes so. And so he pronounces a curse and that's why you're cursed. Or because his laws are the laws of reality are built and when you break them... It harms you. So what is the curse for smoking cigarettes? Is there a curse? What is the curse for jabbing a pencil in your eye? <laughs> What is the curse for cheating on your spouse and your spouse never finds out? Is there still a curse? What's the curse? Seared conscience, warped character, guilt, anxiety, worry, dread, fear. What's the curse for stealing from your employer and not being caught? Is there still a curse? So you cannot avoid, when you understand the reality of how God's law works, you can never avoid the damaging consequences from breaking it. The word curse has actual multiple meanings in the dictionary. And here's the meanings. The expression of a wish that misfortune, evil, or doom befall a person. 
the formula or charm intended to cause such misfortune on a person. The act of reciting such a misfortune, I'm going to curse them. This is what Balaam was hired to do, if you remember, to put this type of a curse by reciting some formula and, and cursing them. A profane oath, a curse word. An evil that has been invoked upon someone. Six, the cause of evil, misfortune, or trouble. Seven, something accursed. Those are the definitions. Do you see how, because the word, it legitimately has different meanings, that depending on your bias, your understanding of reality and how it works prior to even reading the scripture, you will read into it whether this is something God is inflicting. It's, it's the expression of God's anger. It's the formula God uses. It's his, it's his, his recitation of punishment. It's his infliction. That's how it is, because that's how reality works. Or you could read definition six. The cause of evil, misfortune, or trouble. And what is the cause? What is the cause of evil, misfortune to the smoker? What's the cause of the evil and misfortune to the cheat? And I have patients that come see me at practice with very dysfunctional marriages. And, they, and, and they're doing things constantly to the other one that's hurtful. Negative Mean speech, critical, monitoring, accusatory, when there's been no cheating, no, uh, but, but one partner's constantly accusing the other one. What about when God cursed the land and cursed uh, Eve and said, now you'll have pain in childbearing and your husband will rule over you? Well, God didn't. But people read that. Yes, and we've, uh, we have a whole section in our difficult Bible questions thing, if you want to have ex- explain that, but really short explanation here is, God just diagnosed and pronounced reality. If you read the rest of the scripture, he says, cursed is the ground for your sake. He didn't say, I am now going to curse the ground and inflict this upon you to punish you. He said, cursed is the ground for your sake. The ground is now cursed because of you, is what it really means. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all nature groans under the weight of sin because of sin, genetic defects and mutations, and Satan himself has access to nature and can mess with the code. And and it's much harder to achieve good outcomes when you plant your crop now because of weeds and thorns and thistles that didn't exist before. And so the ground is now cursed because of you, what you've done. It's for your sake. I mean, he, even even in God withdrawing His Holy Spirit, He did it for the best interests of man. Because if if the ground, if nature had continued producing its bounty, man would have had nothing but idle time. Yep. Yep. Look what trouble. Even before the flood, it was that way. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So it was it was for man's benefit. That's true. He had to now work and toil and. and but it wasn't an infliction. That's right. And the same thing about the man uh, and woman. Uh, you know, man will rule over you, your desire for your husband. God was simply diagnosing the natural results of what happens in relationships when love is replaced by fear and selfishness in the heart. And when they sinned, love was displaced as the primary motive. They became fear. They ran and hit because they were afraid and they became self-serving. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. So fear and selfishness is now operating. And when fear and selfishness operates in the heart, what's the natural result of people with those motives? Here's the natural result. The strong will seek to dominate the weak and the weak will seek the protection of the strong. And so God said, now is what's going to happen, Eve. Your desire, you're going to have a longing desire to be protected by a strong man, and men are going to rule over you. It wasn't God's design. It wasn't his prescription. It wasn't his uh, way he wants it to be. It was his diagnosis of what's going to happen now that love has been replaced with fear and selfishness in the heart. And as we come back to God's design, and love expels fear and selfishness in the heart, then the husband treats his wife like Christ treats the church, sacrificing himself for her. 
And he doesn't rule over in some authoritarian way based on fear and selfishness, but he rules in the way Christ rules, self-sacrificial service and leadership. Monday's lesson talks about Paul being hit with an intensely bright light on the Damascus Road and hearing the voice speak to him and uh, in his conversion experience. Did Jesus, by this intense bright light, hitting Paul on the road, blinding him, uh, driving him to his knees with this uh, intense experience, did Jesus coerce Paul? Did, did he force Paul? Did he take away Paul's freedom? Did he threaten Paul in some way? Which is, many people will say, yes, God does use power and might to coerce and threaten, because look at Paul. Is that what happened? How do you know he didn't do what I just said? How do you know? We want evidence-based thinking. How do you know? Paul didn't die, okay. But most people who coerce other people don't want to kill them. They they lose their usefulness. So even the despots in our society don't kill the people they put under coercion. They want to keep them alive. Well, how about this? Did Pharaoh experience miraculous evidences to him repeatedly more so than Paul did even? What impact did it have on Pharaoh? Did it bring Pharaoh to conversion? Consider those who came to arrest Jesus. And as they're about to arrest him, divinity flashed through his humanity. They were struck down by that divinity. They fell, just like Paul, on Damascus Road. And they had something Paul didn't have. They saw Jesus pick up a severed ear, put it on the guy's head, and put it right back on his head and heal him. Boom. Did they then begin to worship Jesus? Or did they still take him and crucify him and kill him? What about Mount Carmel? Was there great might and display at Mount Carmel? And after Mount Carmel, did the people stay faithful and loyal to Jesus or, and Christ and Yahweh? Or did they go back into rebellion and idolatry? So the evidence is that any time God uses might and power, the might and power, he still leaves people free, as in Pharaoh's case, as in those who crucified Christ's case, as in the history of Israel. The might and power is not coercive. It doesn't threaten. It doesn't control. People are still left completely free. Do you see what we just did, guys? Do you see what we just did? We did not look for a biblical declarative that says somewhere that I can quote, God did not take away Paul's freedom. And it says so in, um, you know, um, Hezekiah 3, 12. <laughs> okay? It, it, we, we didn't look for a declarative to tell us. We looked at evidence of how reality works that God revealed through history, and we can draw the conclusion reliably. That's evidence-based, reason-based thinking. Okay, go ahead. If you go along with that same story, what if, what if Paul next happened to you? Yes. For three days, he was left alone. To think, to contemplate. Yeah. Okay. We, I've got several more big points I need to get through. So we only have three minutes left, so I hate to cut you off, Wendell. But I've got to keep rolling. Um, <laughs> it talks about the uh, Paul kicking against the, the, uh, the goads or the, or the thorns uh, here. Uh, that, that Jesus said, that, you know, it's, it's painful to kick against the goads or the thorns. Uh, why is it hard to kick against the thorns? It would be nothing different or sim- it's similar to saying, it's hard to put your hand in a fire. That's what it's saying. The answer is, the why? Why is it hard to do that? What kind of law is being revealed in that? Design law. And thus God is teaching us that when you violate his design laws, you will damage yourself. But he has built into his reality that before he lets you destroy yourself, you'll feel pain. The pain is not a punishment. The pain is not a curse. 
The pain is redemptive to teach you that you're dying, you're injuring yourself, stop it. So when you put your hand on the fire, the pain is designed to pull your hand back. So you won't destroy yourself. And this is why sin, metaphorically in the Bible, is leprosy. Because leprosy does not actually damage tissue. It just destroys pain fibers. And so people with leprosy can't feel the pain when they put their hands on the fire, so they don't pull their hand back until they smell the burning flesh and they've done much more damage. And so sin sears the conscience, sears the sensitivities, so that when we're breaking God's design laws, that we are destroying our inner being and not being aware of it. And so it's difficult. Your conscience has been wailing against you because what you've been doing is wrong and you know it. And it's hard to do that. You're, you're uncomfortable. You don't sleep well at night. You feel guilty. You're uneasy. You're not at peace. It's hard to go that direction, and God allows that to happen. But if we persist in it, just like if you stick your hand on a hot stove and you sear the flesh and you burn and burn and burn, guess what will happen? You will eventually burn the pain fibers and it won't hurt anymore. Third degree burns, that's right. And that's what happens when we persist in sin. We can sear the conscience so it doesn't hurt anymore. Now, this is important. When one deviates from God's design and somebody you love, let's say you have somebody you love and he's making decisions that are a violation of God's law and they're about to experience, you can see they're about to have some painful consequence come on to them because of their decisions to deviate from God's design and you step in to prevent them from feeling the pain, from reaping the consequence because you love them and you couldn't possibly see, the, see them cry. It hurts your heart to see them in such suffering. Would such an action be an action of grace and mercy or perhaps even harmful and cruel? Like you have a child who's got a drug problem and they haven't paid their bills and they're going to get evicted because they've been using their money to buy drugs instead of pay their bills. And they ask you for money. And you don't want to see them. It's, it's late October, cold weather's coming in. You don't want to see them get evicted and put on the street. You, you couldn't see them go through that kind of pain. Do you help them by giving them more money? Is there a biblical example? When the, when the prodigal took his inheritance and went away into wild living and eventually burned through it all and ends up living in a pigsty eating pig food, and this is a Jewish boy, so think how vile and disgusting this has to be. Did the father, was the father now a pauper and had no resources, or was he still wealthy? Why didn't the father send one of his agents to, to follow the boy and send him some pizza from Pizza Hut and put him up in Motel 6 at night, get a good shower, he could have done that. Why did he do it? Because he loved him. Because he loved the boy, and if he had done it, what would the boy thought? I'm getting by. It's not so bad out here. No. Leaving him to reap his, the consequences of what he's been sowing brought him to his senses, and he went home. He repented. Now, there is an aspect of pain. I have to finish these points. There's an aspect of pain that is a result of bad choices that we make that is redemptive in nature. However, let me be careful here, not all pain that we experience in this life is due to some choice that we've made or because we're out of harmony with God's design. Let's be clear. We can, we can experience pain because of no fault of our own. Job, Jesus himself. However, some pain is this type of pain. And we need to have some discernment to ask the question. Linda? Many people look at the Old Testament and see what Jesus did to the Israelites. Okay, now Nebuchadnezzar's going to come and take you all away. And now this not bad things are going to happen. And ultimately, when you read it, you'll see that what he says is so that you can compare the difference between how I rule and how they rule. And so you'll know that I'm the Lord and you'll come to appreciate the way I lead versus the way they lead. 
And all of this is a consequence of your choices. And he doesn't, you know, he lets them suffer. He backs off and lets these countries take him over. Not yeah. just redemptive, but educational. Yep. So that you can make the right choice. And that's part of redemption, though. Part of redemption is enlightening and, and renewing our hearts and minds and so we stop making those same... Re- yes, but you're exactly right. So, well, boy, there's a couple more points. I'm going to make another point out of Tuesday. It says... Uh, it says, when he, Paul, when he realized that he was talking to Jesus himself, Saul asked uh, the question that would give Jesus the opportunity. He was looking for, what shall I do, Lord? The question indicates contrition in in view of his actions upon that moment, but more important, it expresses an unconditional willingness to let Jesus guide him in his life from that point on. And I uh, just want to ask real quick, does that question really do that? It does not, folks. Um, Do you remember after Pharaoh was confronted by the plagues and by Moses, Pharaoh uh, says to to Moses this, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and my people and I are wrong. Pray to the Lord. We we have uh, had enough of this thunder and hail. I promise to let you go. You don't have to stay here any longer. Now, does that express from Pharaoh an indication of contrition and an expression of unconditional willingness to let God guide him from this point forward? It does not. It does not. Paul's question does not express this unconditional willingness to be led by Jesus. What does? What does? It's not the question. It was his actions after asking the question. His choice to accept the truth, to follow the truth, to go see Annas, to to do what God asked him to do. That was the evidence that he was willing, not the declaration. People make declarations all the time. Declarations are not evidences. It was the, what Paul did after the declaration that differentiated him. And what Pharaoh did after his declaration differentiated him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you that you will send your spirit of truth and love into our hearts and minds and take the achievements and victories of Christ and reproduce it in us. Give us discernment. Help us put the pieces together. Help us to see through the distortions that are out there. Make us effective communicators of your final message that the world will be light, lightened and you will come soon, we pray. In your holy name, amen.